we are going to continue in our study on the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 5 today. We've gone through the first four chapters. Before we do, I'd like to start with a word of prayer. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can continue to study the book of Hebrews. I pray that you'll be with us now in a special way as we study, starting in chapter 5 today. May we have a better understanding of your plan for us in this time of earth's history. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so we've covered the first four chapters, and in a nutshell, Hebrews 1 shows that Jesus is God. Hebrews 2 shows that Jesus truly is man. Hebrews chapter 3 is a warning and a reminder to the Hebrews to not follow in the pathway of their fathers who hardened their hearts through unbelief in the wilderness. And chapter 4 tells us that we can enter into God's rest. It's more than a place. It's an experience. The place to find it is the seventh-day Sabbath. And we come to the end of Hebrews 4 and we see that we have a, a high priest who can help us, even though we have weaknesses, to help us to enter into that experience of God's rest. So that's, in a very brief nutshell, the first four chapters. Then we pick up, starting in chapter 5, and chapter 5 is broken into two sections, the first ten verses, and then the last four verses, Paul takes a little bit of a diversion and um, gives another warning to the Hebrews. So the way we're going to do this again, I believe we have a microphone in the back. Correct me if I'm, maybe we don't. Um, so I'll start, and um, if we get the microphone, I'll have some of you read some of the verses as we go through here. <clears throat> Starting in chapter 5, verse 1. So remember, we've just read that we have a high priest, where it says, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then chapter 5, verse 1, the thought continues, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Now, we do have the microphone in the back there now, so if there's comments, or I'll have some of you read these verses. Now, notice what Paul says about the description of a high priest. He says, every high priest is taken from among men. So, that is one of the qualifications of Christ for being our high priest. He was taken from among men. And then we see that he's ordained for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, in verse 2, it says, and of course we know Jesus, he um, intercedes on our behalf, and he was the sacrifice for our sins. So that qualifies him to be our high priest. But verse 2, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them out of the way, that are out of the way, for, he, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. How would that contrast with the view that the Hebrew or Jewish people had of their high priests? 
I mean, think about the Pharisees in the time of Christ. I mean, the Pharisees were the people that would say, this, this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. And so the, the Jewish people looked at the, the priesthood as a group of people who were above them, who didn't understand them. They were set apart and in a different world, really. And yet Paul is saying, actually, those who are priests, they should have compassion on men um, because they also are compassed with infirmities. Christ obviously has these characteristics. Um, I'd like a volunteer to read verses 3 um, through 5. A volunteer, right, right here. Hebrews chapter 5. Um, the lady right here. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh his honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that, that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Okay. So... <clears throat> We've talked about, you know, the characteristics of the priest. And in verse 4, it's interesting. <clears throat> Paul says, No man takes this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So Aaron didn't um, angle himself for the position of high priest. God called him to that position. Um, and it's... Very different than, um, let's say, the, the politics of this world. I mean, um, if you think about it, and I mean, this, is a li this isn't a, a purely exegetical explanation of Hebrews 5 here, but if you think about it, I mean, when you watch a presidential campaign, those men or women are doing the exact opposite of the description of the qualifications for high priest. No man takes this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God. What do our politicians do? They say, I'm the greatest and my opponent is the worst person in the world. And so your choice is between the best person in the world and the worst person in the world. And, you know, building yourself up to, and tearing the other person down. And it, it's really... Um, antithetical to Christianity if you think about it. Um, and yet those are the people that are our leaders. Think about that for a minute. Um, of course, God has ordained that we have kings and leaders and presidents. They have their place. But what Paul is saying here is that in the Lord's work, there is no business for that kind of spirit coming into the Lord's work. The leaders that God chooses are the people that he chooses, not those who try to take that honor unto themselves. And that's what Paul is saying here. And just as Aaron was called of God, so Christ was as well. But notice, Christ also glorified not himself to be made a high priest. So Christ wasn't seeking to become that. That's what God, his Father, called him to be. 
So, Christ, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Now, we've seen this verse already in the book of Hebrews. Do you remember where we saw this verse earlier in the book? Or the same, basically the same words. <clears throat> it's in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. And we see where the Father says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And there's another place in the New Testament that is speaking of the specific day that Christ became the begotten, the first begotten Son of God. In Hebrews 1, we see in verses 5 and 6 that when the Father says, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee, Christ became the first begotten Son of God, which was different than Him being the only begotten Son of God. And in Hebrews 5, the concept comes up again. And now it is linked with Christ becoming high priest. So in Hebrews 1, it's Christ becoming the first begotten Son of God. Hebrews 5, not only is it Christ becoming the first begotten Son of God, it's also Christ becoming high priest. And in Acts 13.33, we've done this before, and in the interest of time, I'm going to keep moving here, but Acts 13.33, this was at the resurrection of Christ. Christ is resurrected, so now instead of being the only begotten Son of God, He's the first begotten of the dead. He's the first begotten of the Son of God. And He is also now qualified to be high priest. So we see at the resurrection of Christ, Christ is now first begotten of the, of the, the first begotten Son of God. He's also the first begotten of the dead, which you see in Revelation. And He is high priest. And in Hebrews 5, we've seen that Paul has been speaking of high priests who came from the line of Aaron, which was the Levitical priesthood. But in verse 6, Paul is saying, look, Christ is also a high priest, but he's from a different line. And in verse 6 it says, that, As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Christ is from the line of Melchizedek. Now instead of me going and explaining what the priesthood of Melchizedek is all about, Hebrews chapter 7 is all about that. So I'm going to wait till we get to Hebrews 7 to talk about what the Melchizedek priesthood is. And if you get to the end of chapter 5, you get the idea that Paul kind of wanted to get into it now, but he felt like he had to say something else first. Um, but let's, let's have a volunteer read verses 7 through 10. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, over here. So, continuing on with this thought. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God an high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Man, that's powerful. Those four verses that we just read. <clears throat> this is speaking of Jesus Christ here. 
And notice it says, in verse 7, it says, who, this is speaking of Jesus, in the days of his flesh. So Jesus experienced the flesh that we experience. And remember at the beginning of chapter 5, it says every high priest is taken from among men. So here Jesus experienced the flesh. And Hebrews chapter 2 talks all about that, that he was made in all things like unto his brethren. His brethren are those who are sanctified. So Jesus in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Notice the experience of Jesus in the days of his flesh. It said he offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears. <clears throat> what experience is this speaking of? This is speaking of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, offered up strong prayer, or he offered up prayers with strong crying and tears, and in fact, he sweat tears of, or he sweated, he sweat blood. I mean, if that's, if that's not strong, I don't know what is. Um, and it says, <clears throat> he prayed unto him that was able to save him from death. And it says, he was heard in that he feared. Now, <clears throat> the Father was able to save him from death. But notice Jesus said in his prayer, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that's the prayer that the Father heard. And the, prayer, the prayers that we offer up to the Father in our flesh that will be heard of God will be the ones that say, not my will, but thine be done. If our prayers are like, Lord, um, I mean, what if Jesus had prayed, Father, um, I see the cross coming and I don't want to go through it. Um, that would be very different than saying, not my will, but thine be done. And so many times our tendency is to say, God, why are you allowing me to pass through this? Don't you know that this is horrible? Why are you making me go through this horrible trial? And Jesus could have said the same thing. And what we should learn to do when we pass through those experiences is say, Father, I don't like this experience, but this is, if this is your will for my life right now, strengthen me to go through this and not my will but thine be done through this experience. That's what Jesus did. And <clears throat> notice it says, he was heard in that he feared. So he feared God in praying that way. What's the first angel's message? Fear God, give glory to him. So one of the ways to fear God, pray to the Lord, not my will but thine be done. And in verse 8, this is amazing to me. It says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So Jesus in the days of his flesh learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And if you go back to Hebrews 2, it says that he is able to be a merciful and faithful high priest 
in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted or help them that are tempted. So Christ learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And because he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, he can be a merciful and faithful high priest to us. And aren't you thankful that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest? I, I really like that. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. He's not just a high priest. And in fact, he's not a high priest like the Jews were who said, those people who know not the law are cursed. How come they keep messing up for our strict rules and regulations? They, every time they mess it up, those Jews, they're so pathetic. I mean, that was the Jewish priesthood. Christ, though, he's a merciful and faithful high priest. He knows what it's like to suffer being tempted, and he can help us to be like him. <clears throat> and so because Jesus suffered being tempted, verse 9, it says, being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So Jesus was made perfect through suffering. He learned obedience, and through that, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obeyed him. So Jesus learns obedience through the things which he suffered. And all those who obey him, he's the author of their salvation. Now, we've talked about this before, but is there another place in the book of Hebrews that describes Jesus as the author? Hebrews 12. He is the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So all those who obey him are called to run that same race, to endure the cross, despising the shame, just as Jesus did. Jesus said, if any man will follow me, let him take, him up, take up his cross daily and follow me. So Jesus, because he took up the cross and he walked that road, he, he has the right to be the author of our salvation. And all those who follow him on that same path are, as Hebrews 2 says, become the sons <coughs> unto glory. We see that Jesus was made the captain of our salvation in Hebrews 2.10. And we see that we will be the sons brought to glory when we follow him. So there's a lot more that we could say here, but the bottom line is by the time Paul gets to Hebrews 12, you will know what it means when he says, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He's the one who suffered through Gethsemane. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He was made perfect through suffering. He's the author of our eternal salvation now because he went through that experience and he died on the cross for us. And if we obey him, we will have salvation as well. And then in verse 10, he says again, call of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. After Paul goes through all of that to show this is what Jesus Christ went through, how could we dispute that he is qualified to be our high priest? There's no disputing it. I mean, Jesus went through suffering, torture, you name it. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And hey, he is qualified to be our high priest. No question about it. And Paul's about to really ramp up here. I mean, he's just getting going. And then he says in verse 11, Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. 
And in then verse 12, he says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now here's the context. This is written about 66 AD, about four years before Jerusalem is destroyed. And here are the Christian Hebrews still living in Jerusalem, still keeping the ceremonial law. And he's saying, what in, why am I having to explain to you the first principles of Christianity? You should have known this a long time ago. And you, not only should you have learned this a long time ago, you should have been teaching people about this. Why am I teaching you these principles at this late date in history? 36 or 35 years after Jesus died on the cross. How long does it take for you to get it? Now, <clears throat> I wouldn't be a good Bible teacher if I didn't make the application to us today. Sure, it's true the Jewish people of their day, they should have known a lot more. They should have been teaching the Christian message that Christ is their high priest, that they don't have to keep the ceremonial law anymore, that Christ fulfilled all of that. <clears throat> what about us as Seventh-day Adventists? <clears throat> Are we dull of hearing? Do we know the message? How long have we been Seventh-day Adventists and yet we don't yet know the first principles of the oracles of God unto salvation. And you have one preacher from one theological persuasion who says righteousness by faith is this. Wow, that sounds right on the money. Then you have another preacher who says, no, righteousness by faith is this. Wow, that sounds right on the money. And you can't discern between the two teachings. And Paul is saying, you should be teachers and not just learning the first principles of the oracles of God. And you're at the point now where you have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now, some of you may be saying, yeah, I know, but in First Peter, Peter says that we drink the milk of the word and we grow thereby. Absolutely. And notice what Paul says in verse 13. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. I'll get to you in just a second here. Is it bad to be a babe when you're born? Absolutely not. If you're a newborn infant, the best thing for food is your mother's milk. No question about it. You better not be given a, a heavy course of thick veggie meat two days after you're born. That would be bad for you. But how about this? <clears throat> you were baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist faith 25 years ago, and you're still drinking infant formula. What's going on here? Is that a good thing? Would we think that it was great if, if all of us here in this room were still drinking infant formula? We come, we come to potluck today, and we're all drinking infant formula for, for potluck. That, that would be ridiculous. And yet, and think about it this way. <clears throat> we go through our, our school system and we go all the way, some of us, through graduate education. And it, if you have to repeat a year, whether it's first grade or med school or whatever, it's, it's tough. It's, it's embarrassing, whatever. 
and we do everything we can to avoid that scenario. But what about us if we've been in the same grade of spiritual education for the last 10 to 15 to 20 years? And we just go through the same round of exercises over and over and over again. And Paul is saying, you're unskillful in the word of righteousness. You're a babe. We need people who take the strong meat of the word and grow from that. We need mature Seventh-day Adventist Christians who understand the word of God. And not just one, two, or five. Everybody in this room here should be skillful in the word of righteousness. I realize I'm speaking to the choir here, but this is an important concept. And Dr. Mills, you had your hand up. Let's microphone there. So. Um, the difference between milk and, uh, and other food is milk is always manufactured by someone else. Mm. And so anytime we hear a sermon, that's milk. Mm. Um, but what God wants us to do is to be able to let him speak as we, in our devotional life, study the word, and he gives us fresh mm. new ideas. That's, That's me. That's good. Thank you very much. I very much appreciate that concept. So milk is always manufactured by someone else, but if you think about it, we can cook. I mean, well, I can't, but my, my wife can make a good dish of food. But the point is we... We can make things other than milk, but we rely on others to make our milk for us. That's a very good point. And so, notice what Paul is saying here, though, in verse 13. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, notice this. He is connecting the concept of righteousness by faith with strong meat. So, if you're a babe... You don't understand righteousness by faith. Which means that righteousness by faith is more than just a a surface understanding uh, of some concept. It's actually deeper. That we need to be able to understand meat to understand righteousness. And in Ephesians chapter 4, and actually in the interest of time I'll just point it out. In Hebrews chapter, uh, sorry, Ephesians 4, Paul mentions... He says that you be no more children tossed about by every wind of doctrine. So what happens when you're a babe or a child? You're tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And so when someone like Desmond Ford comes along and says, this is what truth is, if you're a babe in in the word, what he says, well, man, he's a scholar, so I guess that's what it means. And so we need to know for ourselves and not rely on scholars, so to speak, um, to understand the word of God. One of the dyna- <clears throat> excuse me. One of the dynamics involved in uh, what you're saying is this: that especially Seventh-day Adventists need to t- take the Bible as the revealed word of God, and they must have faith in explicit, unrelenting faith in the word of God, and it must be studied by them as such. Right. And if they do not. They will remain babes. Mm, good point. <clears throat> now the time is getting away from me, but um, so let's continue here. Verse 14 says, But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now it's interesting, the marginal reading in the King James for full age in verse 14 
is perfect. So strong meat belongs to them that are perfect, even those who by reason of use, and the marginal reading for of use is um, perfection. So even those who by perfection have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And the word perfect or perfection here in, in a sense also means maturity or full age, so whatever. But the point here is, is that God wants us to be mature in our study of the Word of God. He wants us to come to a point of perfection when we study His Word and that we don't stay stuck in the milk of God's Word, that we come to understand deeper things. Paul was just ready to really ramp up into explaining this is what the Melchizedek priesthood is. Oh, well, you guys aren't ready to hear that. You know, why am I teaching you the first principles of the oracles of God again? You should be teaching this to other people. You should have known this a long time ago. And it's a rebuke to us today if, well, let's just, let's make it practical for us. If we've been Seventh-day Adventists for years and we still don't understand the sanctuary message or the three angels' messages or righteousness by faith and we have to rely on others to explain it for us, we're still babes in the word and we need to grow up. We need to study for ourselves and we need to know what the truth is. It's way too late in earth's history to be relying on teachers or preachers to tell us what we should know. We need to know for ourselves. So having said that, continuing on then in chapter 6, Paul says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. Now this is interesting. Notice here, Paul says, you know, let's not lay again this foundation of the principles of, of God. And notice what he says these things are. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and, and eternal judgment. He's like, you know, we... We should be past the point of talking about repentance. We should be past the point of talking about what, what is faith. We should know that. We should, we should be past the point of saying, you know, is there a judgment? Is there an investigative judgment in heaven? I'm not even sure if that's a biblical. It absolutely is. It's, it's one of the foundational principles that we should be past talking about. Um, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, faith toward God, repentance, all of those things are biblical, they're foundational, and those are the milk of the word that we should have got a long time ago. Are those important? Absolutely. If you don't, if you don't drink the milk, you can't take the meat. But you should have taken the milk in a long time ago, understand it, and move on to the meat. So Paul is saying, if God permit, we're going to move on to the meat now. So he makes his point about the milk of the word, and now let's move on. Then he makes a few more points, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now... <clears throat> The King James mistranslated part of this passage because some people read this verse and they say, wow, if I became a Christian, then, then if I fall away, there's no hope. But what the original translation says in verse 6, 
if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, while they continue to crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. So it's speaking of, of you've fallen away and now you're continuing to crucify the Son of God afresh on a continual basis. You're continuing in sin. And so it's different than if you were following God, then you fall away and you're like, I want to come back. Yes, you can still come back. What this is saying is, if you're still continuing in sin, you can't come back while you're still sinning at the same time. You can't do both at the same time. You have to stop crucifying the Son of God afresh and come back to Him. You can't crucify Him and be part of Him at the same time. So that's basically what Paul is saying. Sometimes that's misunderstood. Continuing on, verse 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Now, in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11, Paul talks, or I'm sorry, Isaiah talks about how the heaven sends forth rain, the earth brings forth fruit, and so shall be the word of God, it will not return unto him void. And what Paul is saying here is, look, <clears throat> if, if you are hearing the word of God and your life is bringing forth briars, the only thing that's left for that is that you will be rejected and the end, your end will be to be burned. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. But if you bear fruit unto God, you'll have salvation. Now, Paul has admittedly been pretty hard on the Hebrews here. And so now he takes a little bit more of a pastoral approach after kind of hitting them hard and saying, how come you're not teachers? You should have known a lot more. And then in verse 9, he says, but beloved. So he, address, he addresses them as beloved. And just remember, we may see our fellow Christian brothers and sisters not living up to where they should be. But remember... For every word of rebuke that we give, we also need to give a word of exhortation. We can't just be all negative, negative, negative and expect for positive to come out of that. You'll end up just being a grumpy old negative independent ministry or something. Verse 9, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So now Paul is saying, hey, look, I'm persuaded that, th that you are partakers of God's salvation. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. So now he's exhorting them, I'm thankful for the good things you've done for God. Praise the Lord for what you're doing. Verse 11, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Now it's interesting, Paul equates the full assurance of hope unto the end with giving diligence to that hope. Which gives us the idea then that when we speak of salvation, yes, it's only by God's grace and his merits that we are saved, but we have a part to play in giving diligence to that. It's not like coasting down the river and then just coasting into the harbor at the end of the day and saying, we made it. We give diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. And then verse 12, 
that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So Paul is saying, look, if you want to have the full assurance of hope unto the end, don't be slothful. <laughs> There's no place in the plan of salvation for laziness. And it goes back to being dull of hearing and not partaking of the beat of the word of God. Do not be slothful with things related to salvation. But followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So now Paul puts these two concepts together. Faith and patience. And he tells us to follow those who have had faith and patience. So those who have faith and patience, those are the ones we are to follow in the way of salvation. It's interesting that the 144,000 are described as having faith and patience. In Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So the 144,000 obviously aren't slothful. They are not lazy. <clears throat> but the question here in Hebrews 6 is, who is the them that we are followers of? And I'm not sure if, if we're going to finish Hebrews 6 today. So I'll tell you, if you look in the rest of Hebrews chapter 6, we have Abraham, who we know is the father of the faithful. And then we see in verse 20, Jesus, our high priest, who is our forerunner. So the two people that we follow through faith and patience in Hebrews 6 is Abraham and Jesus. Abraham is the father of the faithful. Jesus, who is the forerunner, is the author and the finisher of our faith. I like that. So we follow Abraham and Jesus, who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Abraham's the father of the faithful. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And we'll see how far we can get before we wrap up here. Verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured... He obtained the promise. So Abraham patiently endured. So there's someone to follow, Abraham. He patiently endured. He obtained the promise. And God promised him that his seed would be like the stars of the heaven. And Paul tells us in Galatians, they that are Christ's are Abraham's seed. So we follow Abraham and we follow Christ. Verse 16, for men verily swear by the greater an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hopes set before us. Real quickly here, the two immutable things were the promise that God made the promise that God made to Abraham and the oath that he made. So the promise that God made was, your seed will be as the stars of the heaven. The oath was when he had Abraham cut a, a goat or a calf in half. Abraham passed between the parts and God said, by an oath I swear that this covenant that I make with you is sure. And when you understand that an oath is made, basically... If either side breaks that oath, the other person has to die. And that's the oath that God made with, with Abraham. 
And notice, it's impossible for God to lie. God can't lie. So we can take his word as it says. When God says that he made the earth in six days and rested the seventh, that's what he means. If we say that's not what it means, we're saying that God's lying. But God doesn't lie. It's impossible for him to lie. Moving on, verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is our hope. He has entered into the veil. He is our forerunner. That qualifies him to be our high priest. And because he's our forerunner, that implies that we follow him. We run that same race. We look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So the two followers, the two people that we follow through faith and patience, Abraham and Jesus. Abraham patiently endured. Christ was made perfect through suffering. He's our forerunner. He's now in heaven. And he's qualified to be our high priest because of that. He is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Next week, we're going to study Hebrews 7, and we'll understand what it means to be after the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. So thank you very much, everyone.